So you can see on the screen that getting prepared for a study in the book of Acts. And again, if you weren't here when I explained this image, the idea of the iceberg is that what happens in the book of Acts is hugely important, but it's kind of just the tip of the iceberg for the church. And so that's where the image idea comes from. And if you've been with us the last uh, two or three weeks, you've noticed the theme that I've been pointing out in the Gospels. And it's just this. The, resur- the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. So, not that we want to go back and just summarize every week so far, but you could just say, every Gospel account, the point is... The, the resurrection of Christ changed it all. And so uh, we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts how it, it just shocked his followers. Even though he had talked about it for three years, it shocked them. It confused them. John captures that too in what we'll look at today. Uh, we see that it frustrated and upset the people who didn't like Jesus. The resurrection did, I mean. And what we've been emphasizing is that that very thing. The resurrection of Jesus continues to empower Christians today. So believer, you have power in this life to the degree that Scripture warrants and God gives based on who Jesus is and what he has done. Now John's account in his gospel is a little bit different from the others. Not necessarily like in what he includes story-wise or excludes story-wise, but I think more in what he emphasizes. So think about this with me. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they focus a lot on what Jesus taught and what he did. But John seems to focus more on who Jesus is. And you can see it right off the bat if you flip to the beginning of the Gospel of John, what are the very, some of the very first words? Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the one who has come and dwelt among us. So the other Gospel writers, they, they kind of emphasize Jesus' humanity, servant king, that sort of thing. John emphasizes Jesus' divinity. The other Gospels contain records of Jesus' public ministry, his teachings, those sorts of things. But John captures a lot more of the private conversations with just the 12 disciples, more intimate kind of things. If you were to look at like a key word for each Gospel, and people have done this, you can look it up. The one for the book of John is believe. So write that down if you're taking notes. Believe is the key word found in the book of John. He uses that specific word a hundred times in like 880 verses. So that's a lot of verses, but that's a huge percentage of times to use a singular word. So as John tells about the resurrection of Jesus, as he tells about everything that happened afterward, his point is not just to relate facts to us. His point is not just to retell the details that he experienced. John wants to convince you to believe. That's John's hope, and we're going to see see that. He writes a lot more about the resurrection and what happens afterwards than the other authors. So we're not going to read through straight through like we did the last few weeks. We're going to we're going to try to cover three things in the text today. Number one, we're just going to look at John's account of the resurrection kind of compare it to the others. We're also going to look at two of John's statements 
about the person and work of Jesus. And then we're going to look at three of his appearances to his disciples. Those are all covered here. And so uh, our time in the gospel accounts overall has just been to help us understand what fueled the early church to go out and to preach the gospel boldly in the face of a challenging culture. And we've done this in preparation of the book of Acts because Christian brothers and sisters, we need to know what it is that that motivated them because we need the same motivation living in the face of a challenging culture here. So we're going to read John chapter 20. And then when we get into 21, we'll just read certain sections of it. So let's turn to John chapter 20. We'll read that chapter and then pray. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes Cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. As for yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him. Verse 16, Jesus said to Mary, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her on the evening of that day. The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I know my own heart to some degree, and I know that I'm more like Thomas than I want to admit. I've got a feeling that I'm not alone here. And so, Lord, we sometimes make things in our head and say, if this doesn't happen, I'll never believe. Lord, if you want me to believe, make such and so come about. And we put you to the test sinfully. Forgive us of this, Lord, and instead help us, as Jesus encouraged Thomas, help us to believe, not to disbelieve. We can choose to believe just about anything in this life, Lord, and yet help us to see truth from your word, both biblically, spiritually, but also historically, Lord, and help us to believe today. If we've not believed you for salvation, Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, be moving in hearts as we study this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So John captures a lot of the same information, some new stuff. I just want to compare a little bit. He includes Mary coming to the tomb early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body. We see in verse 1, the stones rolled away. That's been captured in the other Gospels. We see in verse 12 and 13 that an angel appears, uh, talks to her. Verse 2 and 18, she goes and she tells the other disciples what had happened. But they still didn't understand. Uh, Verse 9 and 10 say that they went back to their homes. She stays in the garden. They go back to their homes. They, They don't fully understand what's going on. And then in verse 14 through 17, it says, John says that Mary sees Jesus in the flesh and greatly rejoices. Now, I just want to point out as we get going here, there's a couple of things that I find interesting in John's account. Uh, Actually, something's kind of funny. Now, this may be just pure speculation on my part, but it seems like there may have been some competition among the disciples. Okay, first reason why I say this is John, how does John describe himself through his book? The, the disciple whom Jesus loved, okay? On, at first glance, this could sound arrogant, um, but it, just because Jesus loves John really well doesn't mean he doesn't love his other disciples. John just really grabbed hold of that idea. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon says that John describes himself this way simply because he was teachable. And uh, a, a student like this or a disciple like this is someone who a te- any teacher would love to have. They, you, they love. And if you've taught in any capacity, you, you love students that are eager to learn, that are teachable. And, and John seems to be that way. He may not have understood everything that Jesus said in every moment, but he seemed to believe when others didn't. If you think about at the cross, you've got some ladies there who were faithfully following Jesus. John is the only disciple listed as someone being at the cross. He Remember, he turns to him and he says, this is your mother. He's talking about Mary, that sort of thing. Uh, even though chapter 20 of John verse 9 says that he didn't fully understand scripture about Jesus rising from the dead, if you look at the verse before that in verse 8, it says that he saw and believed. Uh, second reason why I think there may have been some competition among the disciples is uh, the humorous part of this is that John reports that he was faster than Peter. This is what guys do. I'll race you to there. And then... We pull hamstrings and end up in the hospital and that sort of thing. But John says, look at verse 4. He says, both of them are running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb. For He's talking about himself. <laughs> uh, and then he, he kind of grinds it in a couple more times. Look at verse 6. He says, Peter followed him because he got there second. And verse 8 says that, he reached the tomb first. So three times he talks about Peter being slow. Now, in Peter's defense, uh, church history says Peter was probably significantly older than John at this point. Um, and if you look at verse 6, Peter actually, even though he got there second, he goes into the tomb first. So there's that. But I think that's kind of funny. Uh, another thing that I find interesting is... John's account of Mary's belief. Okay, so just think about Mary for a moment. Jesus' closest friends who were present for some of the greatest teaching that the world has ever known hesitated in joining Jesus at the cross. And now where do we see them three days later? They're in a locked room because they were afraid. But Mary is different. She's there at the cross. She travels to the tomb early in the morning, and she doesn't even have a complete plan, right? She doesn't know how this stone is going to go away. She, she's got the stuff to anoint Jesus' body, to love her Savior even after death, but she goes with even without a complete plan. And she gets there, John's account, she gets there, she sees Jesus is gone, and she runs back to, to the disciples in disbelief, but she's anxious and concerned because she says somebody moved Jesus' body. She still doesn't understand it all either. And when she goes back, she sees what she thinks is a gardener, but who is it? It's actually Jesus, and she talks to Jesus without knowing that it's him, and she says to him something really interesting. Just think about the practicality of all this. She says, Tell me where you've moved Jesus' body and I'll go get it. Now, these are, these are Jewish people. Um, they didn't have a lot of the fattening foods that Americans are used to. And so we've probably got like a 110, 20 pound woman 
volunteering to carry the body of 160, 70-pound man all by herself. Now, I've got four kids, and when they're asleep, they're a lot heavier than they weigh. So just think about this, this moment with Mary. There's no physical way that she's going to carry the body of Jesus by herself. But she's ready to do it. Because she loves him that much. She didn't have all the puzzle pieces fit together yet. But she boldly believed, even when she might have been one of the only ones. And so, she, verse 18 of chapter 20, she reports all of this to, to the disciples. And she says, I have seen the Lord. She doesn't say, I've seen Jesus. She says, I have seen the Lord. And this brings us to the first uh, of, of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to the disciples in John's gospel. Look at verse 19. So that same day, so the same day all of these events have already happened, Jesus, John and Peter run into the tomb, Mary's back and forth, sees Jesus in the flesh. That same day, the disciples are in the, in the house, a locked room, hiding away out of fear. Jesus pops in, a locked room, and he says, peace be with you. He could have said a lot of other things there, right? He could have said, come on, guys. You just had firsthand witness that I'm back, I'm alive. He could have done a lot of things, said a lot of things, but what does he say? He, he, his aim is still love. It's to dispel the doubt and to get rid of the fear, and so he says, peace be with you. I love that. He says, peace be with you. And then he, he puts out his hands for them to see and his side for them to see where the spear had pierced him. And they re, it really, really, really was Jesus. Remember, Luke says they, he asked for something to eat, proving his physical bodily resurrection. Now the disciples have seen it with their own eyes. Jesus has really come back to life. It's happened. They couldn't hardly believe it. I mean, how, how would these doubting and fearful disciples ever go on to make disciples to teach or to baptize like it says in Matthew chapter 28? How would these disciples ever preach repentance and forgiveness of sin to Jerusalem and to all the nations of the world like it said in Luke 24? Well, it would only be because of the, the physical resurrection of Jesus coupled with the infusing of the power of the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2 that we'll get to soon. John chapter 20, verse 22 says, Then that Jesus breathed on them, and he said to them as he did, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, if, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld I don't think that this is the same kind of coming of the Spirit like in Acts chapter 2 with the rushing winds and the tongues of fire on the head, that sort of thing. I think John helps us understand this. He clarified, if you flip back to John chapter 7, verse 39, he says that the Spirit would be received by those who believe in Jesus. But at that point, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's the clarification. 
Jesus has not yet been glorified, and so his spirit in that sense had not come. Jesus, you can remember, he tells Mary in this story, he says, don't hold on to me too tightly because I've not yet ascended to my father, he says. And he says, go and tell them that's what's going to happen soon. So this was an event in John chapter 20 that they were still anticipating the coming of the Spirit. So Jesus breathing on them, telling them to receive the Holy Spirit, was, I think, preparing them for the day that was soon to come, when that would happen, when they would need to be ready to receive it. He was explaining to these failing men how he would equip them to fulfill what he was commissioning them to do. The Spirit's going to come. Be ready. Receive it. I also want us to understand that Jesus wasn't telling his disciples that they had the power to refuse to forgive somebody's sin or not. Who forgives sin? Does, does a pastor forgive sin? Absolutely not. Does a priest forgive sin? No. Only God forgives sin. Right? Scripture's pretty clear that only God can forgive sin, but Christ, being God, had the power to do so. He made this clear when he healed the paralytic. Remember when they lowered him down the roof and he healed the paralytic? What were the people so angry about? It wasn't that they that he had healed him, though they were upset about that, but it was that he said, go, your, your sins are forgiven. That was what they were so angry about because they knew that only God had the power to forgive sin. And Jesus is there saying, in this miracle, I am he. I am. Unless one came born of God, who Jesus was, then no one else could forgive sin. So the key here in understanding this, I really think, is verse 21. Jesus says to them, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And I think this is the same way that Jesus sends you and I as Christians out into the world now. He sends us to bring the good news of the way of salvation to the world. That's his goal in sending his people out. He's commissioning us for a reason. Jesus would leave the earth physically, but promised that God would be with them in the person of the Holy Spirit, living in them always. And as they preached and taught everything that Jesus commanded them, they could honestly tell people who believed that message, your sins are forgiven. But if people refused to believe the message of Jesus, then they could honestly tell people, your sins are not forgiven, and you stand condemned before God. They didn't have the power, but they could communicate who did have the power. So I don't think this is... Even today, I don't think this is Christians being judgmental and saying, your sins haven't been forgiven. I think this is just Christians relating truth of Jesus' teachings to them. Jesus says this, right? Because the truth is, Christians have the same mission now. You have been commissioned the same way these disciples were. Because see, in love, we explain what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. He says there, unless a person believes that he and the Father, Jesus, and the Father are one, they will surely die in their sins. That's what Jesus says. So that's the message that we communicate to the world in love. And man, they hated Jesus for saying that. If you look at that account in John chapter 8, 
They hated him for it. They, they accused him of being demon-possessed because he said you have to believe that he and the Father are one or else you'll die in your sins. They thought he was possessed by a demon for saying that. But Jesus says, if you keep reading in that testimony in John chapter 8, Jesus says they didn't believe what he was telling them because they shared the same lying character as their father, the devil. That's why they didn't believe. That's why they thought he was demon-possessed. Now, outside of that, besides all of this, the Greek word for breathed here in John chapter 20 is the same word used to mean to produce or uh, to grow or to bring up. Okay? So the point of Jesus breathing on them and encouraging them to receive the Holy Spirit was to encourage them and to produce something in them. Or we might even say to grow them up. How else would these timid and fearful disciples accomplish all that Jesus was sending them out to do? They would need to grow up in order to preach the word as he called them to. Brothers and sisters, might I encourage us in the same way? And I'm right here with you. We need to grow up in our faith in order to preach the gospel the way that Jesus is commissioning us to do. Grow up. That's the first appearance of Jesus to his disciples after the resurrection. The second one is verse 26 through 29. So it tells us that Thomas wasn't there for the first appearance. And so eight days later, the guys are locked in another room together. I assume out of fear still. And Jesus shows up again. Now Thomas is with them. What's the first thing he says to them again? Same thing. Peace be with you. Peace be still. He lovingly and then patiently encourages Thomas to find out for himself if he's real or not. Put your hands, put your fingers in my hands. Put them in my side where the spear was. Now, I think this is an important exchange between Jesus and Thomas. Thomas has already said, I will not believe unless I can do these things. Like I put my hands in his hand and in his side. I will not believe. That's pretty definitive, isn't it? So that's what Thomas has said. Now Jesus shows up and he says, okay, go ahead. Put your hands here. I want you to believe. So Thomas does it and he, he has this revelation. He exclaims, my Lord and my God And Jesus responds, it's good that you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Now notice something in this exchange, this conversation. Jesus doesn't correct anything that Thomas says here. Jesus calls Thomas, I'm sorry, reverse that. Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God. Now these are Greek words of deity of divinity, and Thomas is using them for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He's okay with this because it's true. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has triumphed over sickness, sin, evil men, death, and sorrow. And now with Thomas, Jesus is conquering disbelief. And so this begs the question for me that I want to relay to you and ask you with this morning. Does the truth of who Jesus is conquer your disbelief? 
as we see and understand who he is, his character, his behavior, who he is, does that dispel our disbelief? Because when we, when we demand an answer to every difficult question, our unbelief is revealed. When we insist on a voice or a vision or some special revelation, I think that reveals some unbelief in our hearts as well. When we demand some special circumstance or experience to know that he's there, our unbelief is revealed. Just like Thomas's was. He said, unless I can do this, unless, Lord, unless you reveal yourself in just this specific way, I'll never believe. Now, Jesus, in his kindness, revealed himself to Thomas in that way. But he says, this is almost another beatitude, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. That's Christians down through the ages. Because none of us were there when Jesus healed the sick, gave the sight to the blind. But every one of us has the Word made flesh right in front of us, right here. And every one of us is going to be held accountable and responsible for what we do with that whether we believe or not. So if you struggle to believe, I hope that you'll remember God's mercy to Thomas here. And I hope you'll remember what the the man in Mark 9 cried. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. Psalm, the book of Psalms reminds us that a broken and contrite heart, God will not cast away. He will not reject. That's the second of the post-resurrection appearances. The third one is in chapter 21. So we're going to skip over to chapter 21. Let's read the first 14 verses together. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. So here's the explanation of it. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin... Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. He was swimming to shore. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him, gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So the disciples go out fishing and they don't catch anything all night. They see Jesus on the shore in the morning. They don't realize it's him. He tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. They haul in this huge amount of fish. And, and that's the moment, it seems, at least for John, that he realizes this is something different. This is not just a stranger on the shore. This is Jesus, our friend. Now, they'd seen him a couple of times before. But now he comes in this kind of new way. And John instantly realizes it's the Lord. And then Jesus invites them in. Uh, Peter is with the fun, brash attitude. He just jumps right out of the boat, swims 100 yards to shore. I don't know if he got there any faster than the guys in the boat, but uh, he was excited to see his Savior. And so they get on the shore. Jesus invites them over for, for breakfast. And I just want to point out that in, in this third appearance, he just shares a meal with his friends. This is a simple meal. And he's already washed his disciples' feet. He's already went to the cross for their sin. And even here, in his new and resurrected body, he's still continuing to model for these men what it means to be a servant. And so he makes them breakfast. So here's how you can serve your loved ones like Jesus. You make them a fish sandwich for breakfast. It's right here. Fish and bread. You want to love them like Jesus, make them a fish sandwich. Now, remember last week from Luke 24. Remember how the two disciples were on the road to Emmaus and they're talking with Jesus. They don't know that it's him. They, br- they, eat, they go to eat dinner together and he takes the food and he thanks God and then he gives it to them. That's the light bulb, light bulb moment for those guys. It's not that far off. It's really similar what's going on here. There was just something about the way that Jesus shared what he had with his friends that made them immediately know this is Jesus. Are we this servant-minded? That the way that we serve others immediately reminds them of Jesus. It ought to be. They realized, and they were finally convinced, it says. No one dared ask, is this him? Because they knew it. They knew it was Jesus. They knew he was their Lord and their God. They were convinced. And so those are the the three post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that John includes. Now, there's some other stuff in chapter 21 that's not our purpose in looking at today, but Jesus' conversation with Peter certainly is telling uh, there. That's a really redemptive moment for Peter, I think. But we talked about the resurrection account. We talked about the three appearances of Jesus. And so the last thing I want to do together uh, is just to look at the two statements that John makes regarding who Jesus is. These are chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And then the one we'll look at first is chapter 21, verse 25. The last thing that Paul that uh, John writes in this gospel. He says, now, 
There are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The whole world, all the books, could not contain. Now that is a beautifully poetic statement, isn't it? But John, I think, includes this kind of a statement to help us understand that everything that uh, is contained in his gospel account and even the other gospel accounts is really only a portion of everything that actually happened. Because if everything was recorded, every conversation, every little tidbit of information, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them. And really, all of the, the, the miracles and the teachings, all of these things pointed to something greater than just the words, right? than just the miracle. Everyone pointed to a greater truth. Just think about the very first miracle. When Jesus turned the water into wine. Now surely, that was an embarrassing situation for the host of that wedding. right? That was why Mary asked Jesus to come and to, to do something about it. It was because she was afraid of the host being embarrassed. But it wasn't about the... The miracle that contained in, in, in that story wasn't just about Jesus turning water to wine. It wasn't about just alleviating that embarrassment on the host. He, he explains the point in John chapter 2 verse 11. John says it was a sign through which his glory was revealed. Through which he revealed his glory, chapter 2 verse 11 says. If you skip forward... To John chapter 9, where Jesus heals the blind man who was blind from birth. And, and the disciples, they're, they're all saying, well, who sinned, Jesus? Was it him or his parents for him to be born blind? Now, Jesus heals the blind man, but what was the purpose of it? See, there's something deeper than just the sign, than just the miracle. Jesus himself says that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why this man was born blind and that's why Jesus was healing him so that the work of God might be revealed and displayed in Jesus. Lots of people in recorded scripture and since have missed the point behind these miracles. Think about John chapter 6 when Jesus is uh, feeding the thousands and thousands of people Afterwards, the people continue to follow, but Jesus doesn't hang around. He leaves. I believe he gets in a boat and takes off. Jesus saw or said that the people saw the miracle, but they missed the point of the miracle. They missed the point of the bread and the loaves. What was the point? The point wasn't that they could be fed by Jesus, they all saw their, felt their bellies getting filled and they thought, man, if, if there's a battle with Rome, we've got an unending food supply now. We can just starve them out. We will win. And so they're following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, no, what's the real purpose? What's the point? Well, he tells us, and John tells us in the gospel, the point is that Jesus himself is the bread of life that always satisfies that was the point that people were missing. So if every sign and every miracle and every conversation and every teaching and every meaning behind them was recorded, there's not enough books in the world to contain them. Now turn back to John chapter 20, verse 31. 
Really, it's verse 30 and 31. I'll read it again. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, talking about the signs and the things in this book specifically, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you see how it all comes down to belief in the end? It all comes back to, do you believe? And this is what, that, why that exchange with Thomas is so telling and so important. Because he said, it's good that you believe. I don't want you to disbelieve. And so these things are written for that purpose. Bible scholar Alexander McLaren says this. This is in your notes if you want to follow along. He says, the four gospels are written to us to tell us these two facts about Christ. They are none of them merely biographies, but they are biographies plus a doctrine. The biography is told mainly for the sake of carrying this twofold truth into men's understandings and hearts. That Jesus is, first of all, the Christ, and second, the Son of God. And then comes the rest of the New Testament, which is nothing more than the working out of the theoretical and practical consequences of these great truths, all the epistles, the book of Revelation, and the history of the church as embodied in the Acts of the Apostles, all of these are but the consequences of that foundational truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the truth. That's John's goal in writing, is so that you may believe that. Remember, he's trying to convince you to believe something, and it's this right here, verse 31. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that when you believe, you will have life in his name. This is what John is trying to communicate over and over. If we miss the purpose of the signs and the miracles, we we miss the same thing that the crowds miss, and we are just like them who follow Jesus just to fill their stomachs. If we miss the point of the miracle and we're just following the miracles, then we're missing Jesus himself. Because signs are simply that. Signs to point to something greater. Like if, if you're driving to Yellowstone National Park, which uh, I think Paul Yates is there right now. But if you're driving to Yellowstone, there are signs along the way, right? But nobody's stopping at a sign 100 miles away from Yellowstone and camping at the sign, are they? It's just a sign. That's not the end destination. That's not the point. That's not the goal. The goal is to get to the park. And so you keep going until you find the thing that you're searching for. You don't stop at the sign. So many people stop at the sign and they don't keep going to find Jesus. They're satisfied with something far less than they should be. So John explains why scripture contains these accounts. He says, so you may believe. And by believing, you may have life in his name. People want life, right? People want their best life. People want a fulfilled and meaningful and happy life. But none of that stuff will ever happen if we miss the point. And the point is Jesus. That's as simple as I could say this morning. The point is Jesus. Don't miss him. Believe. 
And so the, the, the first century Christians were sent out with the message that directs people to that point, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He proved it in his resurrection, and he proves it even today with the indwelling spirit that he leaves in the book of Acts. Question is, I'll leave with the same question that John does, do you believe? You can. I would say you ought to believe today. You're not believing in my words. You're not believing in what this church does or stands for. You're believing in Jesus Christ and who he is because the truth of who Jesus is changes everything. It can change you and I pray that you will submit to him and believe today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we say with confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We believe it because if we fail to believe it, we die in our sins. And we don't want that. We all would admit that we've messed up, that we've missed the mark, that we have sinned and blown it. And because of that, Lord, all of our lives are destined for an eternity apart from you in hell. And yet you've made a way to reconcile lost sinners back to yourself through the sacrifice, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son. And so, Lord, may we believe that these things are true and that they are true for us, that He can forgive my sin, that I can be redeemed even today. And I pray, Lord, that many might hear this and understand that You provide all that's necessary for what you're sending us out to do. So as Christians now today, Lord, we don't go boasting in ourselves. We don't go in arrogance saying that we have all the answers. Lord, but we do go saying that we have the answer. His name is Jesus. Help us not to miss the point in all of these things. Even as we get into and study the book of Acts, Lord, and all the incredible things that happen through your church, through your people, Because of the gospel, Lord, I pray that we would not miss the point of it all. And that's to understand and believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Convince our hearts of that this morning. Reconcile us back to you for the first time or yet again, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.